0: Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And uh, today we're continuing our podcast series on uh, ancient philosophy, and we're talking now about Aristotle. So there's kind of three great philosophers: there's Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And these three kind of come as a unit; they build on each other. They all. Um, It's kind of like Socrates is the granddad, Plato's the dad, and Socrates is the kid. They're all kind of successive, one on top of each other. Um, And they follow really close, they overlap um, enough that Socrates, or Aristotle, had living knowledge of Plato and, to some extent, uh, Socrates. Um, Socrates, sorry, Aristotle. Aristotle is who we're talking about. Aristotle was uh, a student in the in the academy under Plato for a long period of time. I believe it was up to around 40 years that he actually studied under Plato. And then for a good amount of that time, he started teaching on his own. Uh, he, he branched out and started his own school, um, kind of a rival academy, where he started teaching. <laughs> and... Um, and he's going to continue with a lot of the programs that were started by Socrates this idea of looking for the one principle that organizes everything heavy emphasis on ethics but also understanding how the world works Um, and this idea of being, of becoming and um, building off of the ideas of Parmenides, Heraclides and uh, others that came before him. he has a very different way of going about truth going about finding truth actually before i do that i'll just do a brief bio of him Uh, as i said he was a disciple of plato spent a lot of time in the academy Uh, after plato died he ended up he started branching off more and more and was a little bit more explicit about his disagreement with plato it seems as though during his during the life of plato uh, he approached things differently but didn't emphasized the fact that he had a different way of seeing the world. After his death made it more explicit that his way was very different. Um, also after his death, after the death of Plato, um, Aristotle ends up being the tutor of Alexander the Great, the young Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great goes on, of course, to conquer the known world all the way from the Mediterranean Sea up north uh, uh, toward uh, you know, the north of Europe And all the way east, uh, all the way up to India, conquers all that area. And everywhere he goes, he pushes um, the Greek culture. Uh, So he is the original imperialist, uh, pushing his culture, his religion, his ideas, his philosophy very explicitly. Uh, to the point where he was encouraging his soldiers to marry the locals and to have kids and to teach them to learn and speak Greek. And, um, and he was setting up uh, Greek stadiums where they could have Greek games, the predecessors of the Olympics, um, and where you know, Greek learning could be taught. And so all this, this is where, um, well for one thing, this is why the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, because the Greek language was the common language, especially in the east, but in the west as well, it was anything written in Greek would be read, would be able to be understood by a very large section of Europe and um, Asia, a uh, no, portion of Asia, not all Asia, of course, in the north and far east, but a large portion here, because of Alexander the Great's influence, and also the influence of Aristotle. Um, which, you know, he represented also Plato and Socrates, the, the influence of these, of these Greek thinkers um, then gets spread all across uh, the known world. And this is also why um, these guys are so influential, is because um, Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great, who, you know, through military might, um, really assimilated a lot of peoples and really brought the Greek influence, um, to the known world, so that's that should suffice for um, a brief bi- biographical sketch of Aristotle. There are some issues with um, with Aristotle that we don't have with Plato, as far as well. I should mention this. Um, as I mentioned, Plato lectured for his students and wrote popular level works for the you know the common man, um, and Aristotle was the opposite. He he wrote books for his students and he lectured for the population Um, and obviously teaching people like uh, Alexander the Great and other people Um, so the books that we have from him are textbooks, they're dense, they're hard to understand they tend to be very short uh, compared to Plato's uh, far more compact Um, for that I think personally that it was largely for that reason uh, that Aristotle was not um, really received. Uh, Plato had a huge impact on the world uh, right away, and it, it really um, continued all the way up through the Middle Ages, all the way until uh, really the, the year 1000. Well, uh, maybe the years 8 900 is when it really, when Aristotle was really discovered in the Muslim world. And then eventually, in the years 1100, 1200, 1300, Aristotle became important in the West as well. It took took centuries and centuries for people to really grasp the importance of Aristotle um, on a large scale. Of course, there would always be people that would would take him and use him. Uh, But for him to be really important on a large scale, it took a long time. Uh, And I think it was just because the nature of his work was very, very dense and difficult. Uh, and even uh, my podcast on him is going to be very superficial because I'm still struggling to understand Aristotle. Up to this point I have been somewhat self-admittedly a disciple of uh, Augustine and uh, Augustine was uh, everybody knows he was influenced by Plato, by Neoplatonism and uh, the school I'm studying at is uh, self-consciously follows uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, even though they're a Protestant school, they're not Catholic, but they follow Thomas Aquinas and his approach, and Thomas Aquinas follows Aristotle. So, I'm trying to understand Aristotle, but it's not really my comfort zone. Um, it's not where I'm at at this point, and I'm just trying to figure out a big question for this semester as I'm understanding these guys is just trying to figure out is this the direction I want to go, or do I want to stick with uh, my Neoplatonic way of viewing things? Uh, which is also kind of re- a reformed way of doing things. So, that'll become what I mean by that will become more and more apparent as we talk more about Augustine, as we talk more about uh, if we get to the reformers, um, it'll become more apparent what I mean by that. Um, it seems to me that uh, one of the big differences between Catholics and Protestants, obviously, there's a lot of theological issues, um, but it seems to me that one of the big philosophical issues is that the Catholic Church follows Aristotle and the Reformers follow Plato uh, as far as their philosophical system and their basic approach. Now, what I mean by that, the big difference here is uh, there's a famous painting, I believe it was by Raphael or by Michelangelo, which has a picture of uh, the academy. And there's Plato and Socrates in the middle of of the academy. Uh, You've probably seen this. If There's a picture of a bunch of people with togas um, on the front of a philosophy book. It's probably the painting I'm talking about. And uh, Plato is standing there with his finger pointed up. And under his arm he's got a book, you know, the Republic probably. And then Aristotle is standing there with his his hand kind of pointed down. And under his arm is uh, metaphysics or something that he wrote. So Aristotle um, is also looking for the order in the world. And he also is going to say there's something like the forms that organize things. But he's not going to say that there's a world of the forms that we need to find through meditation or through memory or through the Socratic method. He's going to say we need to examine the world. We need to look at the world and... um, I mean, if we look at the human race, we look at all the people we know, all the thousands of people we know, we can start to generalize what humanity is like. And then from that, we can start to understand what you know the image is or the form is of man. And we can start to discuss what the form is of man uh, kind of as a generalization. The way he workshopped this out is to say, um, you look at an object, say a chair, so you have a sensory um, experience of seeing the chair with your your body your senses and then like you close your eyes for example and in your mind's eye you have an image in your mind of that chair and he calls that a phantasm uh nothing related to haunting or spookiness or ghosts or anything like that he just calls it a phantasm so you have a phantasm in your mind of what the chair is it's like a mental picture and when you have enough phantasms you can start to extrapolate what what that thing actually is so that your mental images and I might be oversimplifying, well I am oversimplifying his thoughts here Um, it's from the mental images that you have of the real world as it actually is uh, as we perceive it in the the sensory uh, through sensory data it's through that that we understand what the forms are so to speak And the forms are nothing less than um, extrapolations from the world uh, itself. Now we get into the part of Aristotle that is hard to understand. Um, He made a whole bunch of distinctions, divisions, um, he was very precise in his terminology. And again, reading his books, it's like reading a textbook. I mean it became the the textbook on philosophy for a lot of years. so, there's a lot of terms that are going to come fast and quick. Uh, and you might have to listen to this section a few times to really grasp them. Uh, but once you do, they're not, they are common sense. And, and they'll, they'll actually be really helpful for you if you go on to philosophy, or even if you're just examining the world. These are important concepts to have. So, um, first of all, uh, remember Parmenides says, Being cannot come from non-being. So, for Aristotle, um, the world itself is in motion. It's similar to Heraclade's idea of everything is in motion. Uh, you can't step in the same river twice. Similar to how um, Plato said everything is becoming. Everything is moving into existence. It's becoming uh, and coming out of the forms. Um, so he's going to say there is, you is know, pre-existent matter. Matter is, is always there um but there is Sorry, that's not quite right. Forget what I said about matter. He's going to talk about potency. Potency think of potential. So there's active potency and passive potency. So there's the potential for something to to act on something else and there's a potential for something to be acted upon by something else. So this It it comes before being, so to speak, but it's not being, okay? Potency comes first. Um, Things can either be acted upon or they can act upon other things. And when something is acted upon, then it can come into being, can come into existence. Uh, Potency becomes act, and act is existence for him. Uh, when something is in motion, it is in existence. And there, can, there are four causes for Aristotle. These four causes are extremely helpful uh, in philosophy. They're actually helpful just in, in clear headed thinking about the world around us. Um, these are not crazy abstract concepts, so memorize these if you can. Um, there's the material cause, the stuff, okay, let's think about a chair, for example. Uh, There was a time when the chair I'm sitting on was not in existence, okay? But forces acted upon the matter and formed and made it come into existence. So you have four causes that made it come into existence. First, you have the material cause. It's made out of uh, metal and and fibers and um, plastic and things like that. That's the material that it's made out of, in metal. And then there's the formal cause. That's like the blueprint that uh, made it come into existence. Uh, The idea that somebody had in their mind of what it's gonna look like, and then they they brought it into existence. The efficient cause. Um, This is the one I always forget, and so for the exam I thought, well, I need to think of a spark, and just think a spark is efficient. Uh, it's an efficient form, an efficient way of starting a fire, I just put those two words together, sparks are efficient. Um, so the, the efficient cause is like the spark uh, that brought it into existence. Um, in this case it would be um, the factory, or it would be uh, the the workmen that brought it into existence. So there's a blueprint sitting there, there's a bunch of materials sitting there, and then there's the formal cause. who which is the person or the machine that brings it into existence. And, fi- and then there is a final cause, uh, which is simply the reason for this chair. So whether that's somebody wants to make money, or you can say that the formal cause is comfort, or the formal cause is an aesthetic beauty, uh, that's, the, that's the reason, so to speak, that, everything, that this thing exists um, in, in some sort of... A, um, what would you say? I want to say an ethical sense, but that's not that doesn't quite capture it. Um, what's the purpose of life? Uh, when you're asking what's the purpose of life, you're looking for the final cause of human existence. Um, so you can apply these four causes. Let's workshop them out because this is important. Um, you know, the material cause of a human being um, is going to come from the food that the parents are eating. Uh, and that comes into the body, it's molecules, it's, it's uh, atom cells, uh, more specifically it's an egg and a sperm. Um, the formal cause is the DNA that's going to come together and create uh, a new life. The efficient cause, copulation, sex, uh, bringing these two together, that's what's going to make a baby. Final cause, uh, a couple decides they want to have a kid. Uh, and so they say we want to, um, you know, get married, make love, so that we can have a child. Um, we could think about a house. Uh, the material cause you got wood, you got concrete, you got shingles. Um, you can break all those down more to say you know you got tar, you got sand, you got whatever. You got your materials. Formal cause is the blueprint. The efficient cause is the contractor, and the final cause is. Uh, little family living in a white picket fence uh, live in the American dream. Um, What else? Uh, Talking about the creation of the world. Um, The material cause uh, from a Christian perspective is uh, there is no material. Uh, Creation ex nihilo, uh, creation from nothing. So there is no material cause. Uh, The formal cause is um, the mental picture that God had in his mind of what the world would be like. Uh, The uh, efficient cause is the word of God. God said, let there be light and there was light. And the final cause is the glory of God. So I hope that those four causes make sense to you as we workshop them out. Um, The last thing we need to talk about is existence. Existence is divided in Aristotle into two categories. There is substantial and accidental existence um, substantial existence is what uh, makes something what it is uh, so you could ask what makes a tree a tree and not for example a shrub well you know one stalk probably and a certain height I don't actually know what the formal definition of a tree is um, but certainly you know having leaves on it let's talk about a mammal I know. I know better. More about that. So, what makes a mammal a mammal? Um, it has fur. It is warm-blooded. It breathes air. Okay. Uh, so, um, if you take one of those things away, say you have an animal that has scales, but it's warm-blooded and it breathes air, well, now you're talking about a reptile, or else you're talking about some crazy exception to the rule. Um, but. That's a substantial change. If, if this animal now no longer has fur, now it has scales, it's no longer a mammal. We're talking about something else. But if the mammal um, is green instead of red, I don't know what mammal I'm talking about here, uh, if it's white instead of black, for example, um, that's uh, an accidental change. Uh, you could take uh, a skunk and dye, dye that stripe pink and it's still a skunk. You could dye it black. You could dye it any color you want. You could shave the skunk. Um, you could, you know, kill the skunk and, and stuff its fur. Um, well, then it wouldn't be a living skunk. So that might be a substantial change. Um, but you can you can change a number of things. You similarly, might have a three-legged skunk. It's still a skunk. You might have a dead skunk, etc. These are accidental changes. And so the accidental changes are going to be what makes one skunk different than a different skunk. But, uh, they're still all skunks. All, all men, all women are going to be different from one another. If nothing else, they're going to be different because they live in a different time, uh, or in a different space. Um, those are all accidental changes. But as long as we're talking about what is a man, what is a woman, what is a human being, uh, those are substantial changes. So, um, this is going to become important as we talk about later on. Well, actually, I'm not sure I'm going to talk about it. Uh, But the big question during the Middle Ages, one of the big questions was, is there a difference between the substance and the accident of God? So, something can exist. um, Alright, I'm I'm nearing my destination here, so I just pulled over to uh, finish this. I'm actually confusing myself here. Uh, Substance and accident are... um, this is an important discussion, but forget what I just said about God. We're going to come back to that in a second, but that's a different uh, division uh, that I meant to uh, that we're going to have to make before we can talk about God. Um, substance and accident become important for the church later on because Thomas Aquinas is trying is going to try and explain how um, how the the bread and the wine become literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, uh, because this is what Jesus said, this is my blood, uh, this is my my flesh, eat this in remembrance of me. Um, and so, uh, Thomas Aquinas is, is going to say, um, this is a substantial change that happens during uh, communion, but the accident doesn't change. So... Um, Let me just give you a crazy example here. Um, let's just say we made a robotic skunk and it looked exactly like a skunk. And, and it even sprayed like a skunk. I don't know what, why I came up with skunk. I was driving along the road. Maybe I saw something on the side of the road. But anyways, um, so you have a robotic skunk and you have a, a real skunk side by side. And you can't tell the difference which is which. Okay? Because all that you're seeing is the accidental differences. You're seeing the black, you're seeing the white, you're seeing the outside of the skunk. Um, and how they walk, and where they are physically in time and space. Those are all the accidents. But the substance of the two is different. One is a robot, one is a real biological life form. Okay, um, And so it's as though the communion for Thomas Aquinas changes from uh, bread and wine into blood and flesh. You don't see that because all that you're seeing is the outside, so to speak. You're seeing the accidents of of the, the bread and the wine, and those don't change. But the essence of them, what you can't see, has changed. So that's a pretty hard concept if you're not used to thinking in Aristotelian terms. Uh, But that's still formative for the Catholic Church. That is how they see communion. It's called transubstantiation. uh, And it comes out of Aristotle, uh, filtered through um, Thomas Aquinas. Now the next division we need to make is between essence and existence. Um, Now what is the essence of something? If I describe a skunk to you, you know what that is. You have a mental picture of what that is. You have a, an understanding of what are the substantial characteristics of a skunk. Probably, you know, an animal that's part of the weasel family that has a stink gland that uh, walks on all fours, um, mammal, warm blooded, black and white. Um, those are all the substantial elements of a skunk. And then there are accidental differences as well. So that's all part of the essence of a skunk. If you can have a mental picture of it, if uh, we can have a conversation about it, then it has an essence. It also has an existence. This is a real animal that we're talking about. Uh, But we can have the same conversation about a dodo bird, which doesn't have existence anymore. At least it's not a living animal anymore. Uh, All we have is pictures. But it still has an essence. We can talk, you know what a dodo bird is, I know what a dodo bird is. Uh, If we did a little Google searching, we could find out, you know, what island they were on... Uh, when they went extinct, why they went extinct. Um, it has an essence. If you can describe it, it has an essence. And some things have an essence, but they don't have an existence. We could go one step further. What about a unicorn? has an essence. We can describe what it is. It's a horse with a horn on its head. Um, but it doesn't exist, as far as we know. Uh, as far as, you know, with genetic research, maybe they'll make one someday. Uh, but it doesn't actually exist at this point. Uh, or the Pegasus, or, um, I don't know, uh, what's the, a griffin, um, has an essence, head of a lion, body of a, is it a is it a, a lion? Head, head of an eagle, body of a lion, forget exactly. Um, has an essence, but it does not actually exist. So this division is going to become important throughout the Middle Ages, Um, is God's essence different from his existence? And Thomas Aquinas will say, no, they're both similar. or They're both exactly the same. Um, How you can describe God is exactly the same as how God is. He doesn't have an essence other than his existence. Uh, And that difference, honestly, it was really important for the philosopher of the Middle Ages, and I don't really get it yet. Um, So I won't be able to communicate to you, unfortunately, what the the main deal is with essence versus existence in the nature of God. But apparently it was important. All right, so let's wrap up Aristotle. Um, His big project was science. And um, not science in the contemporary sense of the word, although he is sometimes called the father of modern science. Um, But his science was starting with with, um, first principles. What can we establish is definitely true. And what can we know about the world through observation? Remember how he he looked at the world. Uh, you make mental pictures looking at the world. You observe it. And from that you can develop certain principles about how the world is. Uh, one of his longer words apparently is um, on the nature and being of elephants. So he just spent time observing and studying elephants in a fairly scientific way as we would understand science today. Um, so um, he's looking at at, uh, at the world as it is, at first principles, and trying to understand it by observing the world. So this is different from how Plato is trying to understand the world, basically by going into his own mind, by, by meditation, by, uh, inwardness. Uh, Aristotle is understanding himself in the world through outwardness, through observing the world, by looking at the grass and the trees and the elephants, uh, and horses. He's trying to understand the world. Uh, Plato obviously wouldn't have gone this direction because he said the world is, is shadows. Um, it's it's uh, um, a false world, so to speak. The real world um, we have access to through our memory, um, it, which is the world of the form. So these are two very, very different directions that we can go in philosophy. Now, we're going to skip ahead here. Um, as I said, there's kind of two roads to verge and a wood. Uh, versus between kind of Plato's way of doing things and Aristotle's. Um, And uh, just a few podcasts ago, I talked about, uh, you know, relax and study philosophy. When I started to understand, there's two very, very different ways of approaching things. Um, It helped me to understand um, the different way that various people go about uh, doing apologetics and understanding theology. Um, For example... Um, if you follow Plato, then a really important argument for the existence of God is Anselm's ontological argument. And we're going to talk about that later on. I'm not going to steal my own thunder here. Um, but just to say that the ontological argument makes absolutely no sense uh, to an Aristotelian mind. It just it doesn't make sense. Thomas Aquinas frankly said, this argument doesn't work. But if you're working at it from a Platonic understanding it does make sense. In fact, this is one of the main arguments that William Lane Craig continues to use, is the ontological argument. On the other hand, if you approach the world from um, an Aristotelian uh, perspective, then some of the arguments that um, Thomas Aquinas develops, he develops five ways of proving God's existence, and one of them is the argument of the unmoved mover. Which is still a powerful argument um, for the existence of God that is still in use today, um, and let's let's ar- let's discuss what that is because it's going to go ahead and uh, help us understand August or Aristotle better. So uh, Thomas Aquinas is going to argue. This is in the you know late Middle Ages, right at the beginning of the Renaissance. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is going to use Aristotle to say God. Must be absolutely simple, and he must be the first, the first causal principle of the universe. Why is that? Why does why does God need to be simple? Uh, because if God were composed of parts, he would need to have a different principle to individuate him. Uh, because in the Aristotelian way of thinking, uh, you have potency and act, and if something is composed of various parts. There needs to be something else that moves on it to get it moving. Everything that exists, is, it's moving. Uh, and it's moving because something else moves it. And that is moving because something else moved it. Uh, the um, passive potency was acted upon by active potency. Something with potency, you know, moved it. Well... Eventually, you need to go back in this chain of causality until you get to a first principle, or or not a first principle, but an unmoved mover. Something that has active potency but has no passive potency. Something that's able to act on other things but is not able to be acted upon. Because if it's able to be acted upon, it's just another link in the chain. You need to start somewhere. And that something, in Aristotle's way of thinking of things, needs to be absolutely simple, not composed of parts. Because if it's composed of parts, um, then something else needs to be there to separate the parts. And so uh, Thomas Aquinas is going to talk about the impassibility of God and how God is um, absolutely simple, and yet God is Trinity, and yet God is personal. And so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to evaluate that, and we're going to talk. Um, I'm going to kind of hum and haw, and, and basically say, I'm not quite convinced yet by Thomas Aquinas, although I'm not writing him off yet. I still have a lot more to learn about Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Um, this is a huge uh, oversimplification of, of Aristotle, of course. I think I did a better job of Plato, but that's just simply because I understand him better. Um, the other thing that's really important about uh, Aristotle is logic. He didn't begin logic. Um, logic is the study of how to build an argument and the study of how to think clearly. Uh, So if you've ever accused somebody of circular logic, um, you're doing logic. You're doing dialectics. Um, If you say, you know, roses are red, this flower is red, therefore this is a rose, you're doing, you know, logic. Uh, You're not doing it well because not all flowers, you know, you, you had a faulty premise in there. Um, but that is logic and the way that I mean if you ever write a paper and it comes back with this is a question begging statement uh, this is circular reasoning this is an ad hominem attack this is an ad hoc argument those are all logical uh, critiques and there's a whole discipline now of logic and Aristotle was really important um, not for pioneering the science but for really giving it form and for really um uh, from, from Aristotle, logic really you know, became an important movement within, within Western thought. And so um, that's another one of his huge contributions to Western thought. It's something that I personally really appreciate. And as we're going to get into um, the church's use of philosophy, logic is one of those things that is going to become super important for theology. Because when we have clear thinking then it's going to be much easier to um, do theology and understand the Bible well.